this is Goofy Toad. This is Dr. Walter Aka. Dr. Kyle Dumpert. We're here with a good buddy of mine. He was a uh, roommate, and well, we were in the same class in dental school together, and uh, when he was doing his residency and I was doing mine, we were roommates, and uh, have been really good friends ever since. Uh, Dr. Brandon Humberger, he's gonna, he's here to talk to us about oral surgery, because uh, that's, uh, that's what he is, an oral surgeon. So, um, welcome, Dr. Humberger. Thanks, guys. You know, can I just say that, um, you know, everybody knows my dis- disdain for oral surgeons, you know, uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, Dr. Kyle Dumford literally picked the nicest oral surgeon that I know to bring him on. And I'm not sure if he did it on purpose, so I wouldn't argue with him. But I have nothing but respect for this guy, so I'm actually really excited. You know, I was I was ready. I was about to be like, oh, let's get ahead and and talk about this, this, and this, and, and now I, I really can't say anything but good things about. It. Uh, <laughs> so, so this kind of sucks. It ruins my it ruins my night. <laughs> but please go ahead and just introduce yourself. Let's give a little background. Uh, so my name's uh, Brandon Humberger. I'm an oral surgeon in uh, Western PA. Uh, I do full time uh, private practice. Uh, Monday through Friday, and I also am a part-time uh, clinical assistant professor at uh, the University of Pittsburgh Dental School and uh, UPNC for facial trauma. So he he's definitely a, a busy guy. Uh, I, I guess I want to start off by because I was living with him through residency, um, but I, I guess start off for anybody that might be looking into uh, wanting to become an oral surgeon. Uh, w- what path did you take to uh, get to where you are? Uh, so I initially, even before dental school, I kind of had a question on whether I wanted to do medicine or dental, and uh, I was always kind of hands-on, and that's kind of what led me to uh, dentistry, just kind of being more hands-on with patients and more involved, but as I kind of went through dental school and just got a glimpse of what uh, surgery is like, um, it kind of showed me that I could do hands-on and also kind of the medicine side. It was kind of the best of both worlds, so kind of as I went through dental school, I just kind of enjoyed also doing hands-on, you know, with the dentistry, but um, with surgery, I feel like you're managing patients, going over medical complexities, trying to outweigh uh, risks and benefits and how to take care of patients. So it kind of was a passion that I was able to fill both of those kind of needs with hands-on, but also still enjoying the medical side of things. Well, let's you know he's he's a humble guy, like I said. So let's let's actually let's really be honest, right? So whenever we all go into dental school, I'm gonna say maybe half of the dental school class says I want to be an oral surgeon, right? Until the first the first test, and then we get ranked. <laughs> we do, we get ranked, right? And then you really kind of fall into place, right? And and, and some some of the dreams are kind of shattered immediately, right? And so usually. Most oral surgeons, and I'm going to say most, not all, but most oral surgeons are using the top 10 um, of, of their class, right? Not everybody in the top 10 specializes, but oral surgeons, like, you guys are the pinnacle in, in, in most classes, you know? Um, right. Do you think that a student coming into, you know, from undergrad to dental school, 
do you think that their mentality should be what most of my classmates' mentality was, which was, I want to specialize or I want to be an oral surgeon? Uh, or should they just be kind of, you know what, let me just go in here and learn everything that I possibly can and go from there? I think it's good to have a kind of path or direction, but it's also kind of something that, you know, I feel like you get into dental school and we're all kind of top of our class to kind of get into dental school to begin with, but then you kind of get in with everyone else that's been at the top of the class, you just kind of, I think you need to put your head down and just, you know, study and kind of see where you go. But also, yeah, I feel like you need to get some experience. Um, from my aspect, kind of coming into it, I didn't really have too much experience when it came to surgery. Like I shadowed some dentists and all that, but I didn't really know the ins and outs of what oral surgery was. It was just something that you know, I thought was kind of interesting and uh, it seemed like it would be an interesting, you know, day-to-day job, maybe not the same kind of routine every single day. Um, but that was kind of, I guess, my outlook coming in. I, I didn't necessarily know first year that that's what I really wanted to do until I kind of rotated through our surgery department, kind of saw what it was like to, you know, take out a tooth or perform kind of some minor surgeries just in the clinic. And that's kind of what really drew me in. So I guess to answer your question, obviously, I wanted to do good in dental school, but it wasn't until I kind of got into it that it kind of solidified what I wanted to do. Now, with uh, the oral surgery program, uh, there's, uh, if I remember, there's a, a one year kind of oral surgery experience residency that I you that you took is that right well there's there's two different paths to become an oral surgeon obviously you go through dental school uh and have to graduate and apply to the programs and then there's two uh programs uh one is a four-year track and one is a six-year track now the difference uh between the four and the six year is uh, one, you obtain your medical degree or get your MD, and the four-year you don't. You get an oral surgery certificate. So when you apply, um, obviously, different programs across uh, the U.S., some are four years, some are six years. Some six years are better than four years. Some four years are better than six years. Um, there's obviously going to be some debate on that, but I think it's highly based off of the program as well and just the overall kind of um, experience that you get and the specific like trauma, cancer, uh, anesthesia, just kind of what the program is good for. Um, there, you were kind of saying a one year, um, situation, say a dental student, uh, goes through and graduates and applies to one of these programs and doesn't get accepted. There's an opportunity to do a one-year kind of internship uh, in oral surgery. So you get accepted by a program that's looking for an individual um, that hasn't matched. Uh, you can become an intern for that year uh, and kind of do everything a first-year oral surgery resident would do in the hopes that either that program, when you reapply the next year, will accept you or kind of beef up your resume uh, to go through the match process again uh, after you complete that year. Let's break it down. Um, so let's just say that you were an excellent student. Uh, you got into um, a program. You, you did, you know, you got in directly from dental school. You went to uh, an oral surgery program. Can you break down why somebody might want to go the four-year route versus the six-year route? 
it's basically, I feel like, based off of your personal preference, um, some, you know, are really heavy set on getting an MD and want to have a dual degree, your DMD, DES, and uh, MD. Um, and some, you know, just kind of want to go through and, <laughs> for a lack of better terms, uh, not go through the medical school route and get out, you know, two years sooner. So there's a, there's a lot of people that say it's a, a million dollar decision because of, say, your loans that you have from dental school that continue to accrue and then the cost of medical school for four years kind of added into just two extra years. So you're paying for two different degrees on top of that and, you know, your time out that you could be working. So there's a, it's basically a personal preference. Um, and like I said, uh, before between four and six years, I went to Pitt and I felt our four year program, uh, was, you know, just as well as our six year program. Like I was very fortunate to have a, a nice program in that regards, but, other places don't have four and six uh, year programs. Uh, they either have the six year or the four year. So uh, the University of Pittsburgh was kind of one special program that we have both routes that were available. Let, let's talk lifestyle. Because uh, like I said, I, I live with you through residency. Do- Dr. Aka and myself did the same residency, uh, GPR at the at a v- VA hospital in Pittsburgh. Uh, and we had it pretty easy. It was, you know, we really didn't have to take emergency call. Uh, at least our group didn't. I, I don't want to speak for no, Dr. No, Rocka, but, no, we didn't, uh, but you're making us look bad, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had it pretty easy. I mean, we, we had a pager, but we never I covered had, his call. Yeah, right. It was set up that oral surgery covered our, our emergencies, so not once did I get called. Pretty much. On my pager at Pretty all. Much. I got called for his pager. So <laughs> I don't know how that works. Yeah, you know, uh, my residency, I was there eight to five, Monday through Friday. Then that was it. I mean, we had homework, we had uh, articles to read and review and all, all this stuff. But uh, as far as time requirement inside the clinic, eight to five uh, basically was all we need. Now, uh, Dr. Humberger, on the other hand, would be, you know, coming home at 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night. His pager goes off at 1 or 2 in the morning. He's back at the hospital for another however many hours. And, you know, he's not doing that for one year. He's doing that for four years. Talk to us about that life one at uh, that, yeah. how to survive that kind of right. thing. Right. You know, that actually, just to continue to piggyback on that, I feel like a lot of people don't understand what it what goes into it, right? Everybody glamorizes and says, oh, I want to be an oral surgeon. But people don't realize the hell you go through for about four to six years. Yeah, it's it's definitely different because you, you get into dental school and you kind of have these set times. And, you know, it is rough. You're studying, but it's, it's kind of a set time. You show up like 730, you go to four o'clock and you're done. But once you get into surgery, especially your first year as an intern, um, you are kind of low man on the totem pole and you have to kind of do everything that it kind of comes in. So I don't want to say that it necessarily gets easier as you progress through. You have different kind of roles to play as you kind of progress, but the, definitely the first year as an intern and depending on your program too, ours uh, is very heavy on trauma. So we would get uh, trauma from kind of all three surrounding states. So we were really busy. So 
typical day. Um, start out kind of in the hospital, have to, you know, pre-round on our patients depending on the day. So getting up at 5 a.m. or sometimes even earlier, um, depending on what hospital we were in. Sometimes we had to sleep in the hospital overnight for, you know, traumas or emergencies that come in. So we're there immediately once they need us. But like I said, we'd get up in the morning, have to round on all of our patients, and then the team would come in. We'd present each individual patient, uh, go back around, see everyone. And then uh, once that was all done, we'd have to finish all our notes uh, and have them all in by our typical workday schedule, which would start, you know, anywhere from, you know, 7 to 8 o'clock. So that has to all be done, you know, immediately before we get into our actual clinic workday or kind of what a private practice would be like. Um, and then from that standpoint, then we'd have cases uh, doing anything from implants to bone grafting to uh, wisdom teeth. Um, so, you know, have a full schedule through that. Um, and typically that's anywhere from, you know, until four o'clock and then throughout the day, uh, obviously the pager doesn't shut off. So if there's emergencies that kind of come in, we need to figure out how to break free from our responsibilities there in the clinic to run to the hospitals, uh, to see our patients, make sure they're triaged correctly. And, uh, if they would need to go to the operating room, try to get them all set up and get everything arranged from that while, you know, kind of juggling multiple things. So, uh, it's definitely crazy and your job doesn't stop at four or five o'clock at the end of the day. Um, you know, kind of we're a team, but we would rotate call, uh, once every four days. So if you're on call, you're on call for 24 hours. So anything that comes in during that time, you're, you're basically spearheading. So uh, like I was saying, I sometimes not get done even with our typical day uh, in the operating room uh, and finish rounding on our patients after they're operated on until nine, 10 o'clock and come home and the pager would go off sometimes and just never kind of get back home. And then you start your next day. So it's definitely rough. Um, you definitely build uh, some inner strength to try to just keep kind of pushing forward, but um, it, it's definitely a kind of an eye-opening experience if you haven't kind of experienced it or shadowed or you know kind of followed someone in surgery if uh, if you're in the program there. So even then, it's you don't get the full experience until you're kind of in their shoes to see what's happening. Yeah, when it comes to um, oral surgeons, right? Everybody knows. Oh, well, I'm getting my wisdom teeth taken out, so I'm going to go to an oral surgeon. I feel like that kind of dumps down your profession, right? Some people do it all the time. No offense to that. But most oral surgeons do more than that. So can you explain to us or anybody listening, what are some of the other things that you guys do besides just take out wisdom teeth? Yeah, so... A lot of it does depend on the training, but like it, uh, where I trained, we, we pretty much did full scope except cancer, uh, because we had a really good ENT program. So they dealt with that. But, uh, obviously our bread and butter is kind of wisdom teeth and implants, but we do kind of, you know, major grafting of the maxilla. Um, we'll do orthognathic surgery where, 
if the jaws aren't in line where braces can't fix a bite, we can separate uh, the upper and or lower jaw and move them into position and repin them using uh, mini uh, plates and screws to secure it to help kind of fix a patient's bite. We do temporomandibular uh, joint uh, surgery where if they're having a disease of the joint, um, we can do arthroscopy, arthroplasty. Uh, we can do total joint reconstruction. Um, we also do uh, trauma as well where motor vehicle accidents where someone breaks their jaw um, upper and lower or uh, smashes their nose in or their frontal sinus. Um, we do uh, kind of uh, open reductions with also plates and screws that kind of help stabilize the fractures and reposition um, the bones to where they're supposed to be uh, prior to the accident. So that's kind of uh, the main scope of what we kind of practice. But there's also other um, programs that uh, we'll do kind of microvascular, um, where if someone has a defect of kind of the mandible, um, they can harvest, uh, one of the bones in the leg and help kind of bring it up with a soft tissue, uh, flap to kind of help, uh, reconstitute the mandible and also kind of graph with soft tissue. So there's multiple things that you can do. And some programs, like I said, do deal with uh, cancer as well. So if there's flora mouth or tongue cancer, they can do resections and reconstruction um, and also in neck dissections and all that. So there's a very broad scope of kind of uh, surgery that a oral surgeon can perform. Um, but unfortunately, I feel like there are there is a separation that kind of private practice, uh, oral surgeons just kind of get in the realm of doing wisdom teeth and implants and not really seen for doing anything kind of else outside that realm. Okay. I, I got a question for you. Um, I want to, I, this is a, one of my favorite questions. So I, I'm a patient and my dentist wants me to get a dental implant. Uh, in my town, I have an oral surgeon and I also have a periodontist. Now, both of these uh, advertise as being able to do implants. Uh, Dr. Aka, why, as a patient, would I want to go to see you versus an oral surgeon? Okay. Yeah, we're going to do, <laughs> do this again. <laughs> we're going to do this again. All right, cool. Rough so, patient there. <laughs> yes, I hate this patient, actually. This patient seems to, be, seems to set us all up so we can all fight. Um, yeah. So periodontists, right? We deal with we, we deal with the bone, the structures around it, soft tissue and so forth, right? And so we're pretty much known and I guess we have a reputation of being more gentle with the uh the bone, the soft tissue, basically going in and out, coming in and out so that no one really knows that we were there. If we do our jobs well enough, no one will ever know that you we even had surgery. Right. We're known for micro surgeries right i'm not saying that all oral surgeons are uh, aggressive i'm not saying all oral surgeons are um uh, heavy-handed but i'm saying that you know <laughs> you know i i've, I've seen a, a good amount of oral surgeons that i would not let work on me why they're very good at extractions but when it comes to the finite procedures 
Uh, that's where they kind of lose me, okay? And I'm going to say this um, by, you know, by saying that there are some oral surgeons that I re- truly do respect, and I did learn from a good oral surgeon, Dr. Demas, um, who basically was one of the best, and I really do appreciate him for that. And he taught me, and he showed me how to do implants properly. Uh, so is it every oral surgeon? No. But, but you know, um, most oral surgeons have been known to be very heavy-handed. And I'm not sure it's just because they want to go in and come out. You know, their their goal is to try to rush and get, you know, in and out and, and take these wisdom teeth out as quickly as possible so they can move on to the next thing. But mo- some oral surgeons that I've noticed, they're very heavy-handed. While uh, periodontists, we kind of finite, you know, we, we finagle and, 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 and we try to be as cautious as we can with the soft tissue. And so in the end, if you want something aesthetically done, you go to a periodontist. That's my answer. Okay. All right. Now, Dr. Humberger, um, if, uh, if I, if I'm the patient and I, I'm asking your advice, should, should I see this, uh, the, the periodontist or should I, you know, look for an oral surgeon to do my implant? Well, what are your thoughts? Well, I guess from my standpoint, obviously I'm an oral surgeon, so I have a bias, uh, <laughs> kind of on that side. So I'm not biased at all, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm not trying to be kind of the nice guy, but I can kind of flip that around too and say I've seen periodontists that are heavy handed, you know, as well with some of their surgeries and, you know, not as delicate. And it, it, it's really, I feel like what kind of, uh, individual uh, that is in your area. But, um, I guess kind of from an oral surgery perspective, uh, perspective, um, just, you know, we have four to six years of training on top of our dental school training where every day we are placing kind of implants and doing that. So the experience just in our residency is like kind of astounding with the number that we kind of place. So, you know, I I feel like some programs, uh, you know, are a little bit shorter and maybe don't have as much time dedicated to placing as many implants. So, my biggest thing is I think if you're determining who you want to go to to see a, a specialist to place implants is asking them how many implants do you place a year. And, you know, if they're only placing 15, 20, 30 implants a year, I don't know if I personally would want to go to someone like that. Um, so <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of outside. You are that, offending so. people on here. Yeah, I know. I'm just saying. <laughs> just more experience and just uh, that's kind of my outlook, I guess, on it. Because I wouldn't go to someone that just does this uh, every once in a while. Because there's there are little tricks and stuff that you learn, obviously, with more experience. You know, okay. I'm not trying to defend uh, or you know, kind of uh, put anyone down. No, you said you said what you had to say. You said what you had to say. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> no, uh, you know, uh, all, all jokes aside, I mean, one thing that I will say um, is, or the problems I'm noticing in dentistry is that we're too much of a you come to me or you go to them kind of situation, right? Yeah. We don't right. think about a, a group collaborative effort, right? If you're sick and you go to your primary care physician, they're not going to sit here and say, you're going to do everything here, Right. They'll say, hey, I, I have a good cardiologist that you might want to go see or a good, you know, um, ENT or a good, you know, whatever, right? They, they basically say, let's work as a team to figure out what this problem is and solve it. I personally know that 
I'm not going to be able to do a big ridge augmentation, basically building up all the bone again. I send that to an oral surgeon. That's an immediate. I don't even think twice about that. I also work with a a general dentist that I know is capable of restoring it so that it looks like we didn't do anything at all. Right. But dentistry has gotten to the point where now, and I'm going to speak on this, and this is my opinion, but it's gotten to the point where now the money is controlling everybody's thought process and actions. No, it's true. That's right? absolutely true. We're, we're not, we're not, we're not doing a collaborative effort like we should. Right. Yeah, we're definitely not. I, I fully agree with that too. Money is kind of driven a lot of competition, even when it's not, you know, in the benefit of the patients. So. Well, I, I think it started out with medicine. I mean, there, it used to be you had one doctor that took care of everything for you and, you know, Flat, fast forward to our current situation, there's how many different specialties within medicine. Right. It used to be there was, you know, a general dentist, and now how many specialties are we up to? Nine or ten with uh, dental anesthesia joining as a uh, specialty. And there's, you know, and this is, I'm guilty of this too, of trying to be the super dentist where I can try to take care of everything, but I also know my limits and when to, you know, refer things out. But Again, I, I'm in a small town, so I don't have the luxury of having, you know, a bunch of specialists that are close by that I can re- easily refer to. And if I do, there's a three to four month wait to see them. But I, I definitely think there is a, uh, a specialization that, you know, if, if I want to have something done on me, I want to go to the doctor, whatever field it is that that is all he does and he knows that. Uh, that one area and he knows it like the back of his hand versus going to, you know, a general surgeon that can, you know, either uh, work on my toe or uh, work on my heart. Right? It's just there's there's a, a huge benefit to that specialization. Um, Doc, uh, Brandon, let me ask you something. Uh, when it comes to dental anesthesia versus an oral surgeon, right? an oral surgeon for years, had been play, had been putting people to sleep. Yeah. Right? Never even thought twice about it. Just, you come in, you get put to sleep. I mean, I, even myself, when I had my wisdom teeth taken out in school, uh, I went to the oral surgeon department, um, and they put me to sleep, took out the teeth, I woke up, everything was good to go. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now the argument is, how could you possibly do surgery and put people to sleep and monitor them properly? And what do you say to that? Yeah, uh, that's, uh, very common and there's been a kind of a lot of heat over that too. Um, you know, I, I guess from my standpoint, the surgery almost becomes so routine because we do it so much that I feel like I, you know, obviously I'm concentrating on that, but my main focus is to also, uh, to make sure the patient's stabilized and everything as well. So it, I may not have another doctor, but I do have trained uh, assistants that are dance certified. Basically, what that means is they're anesthesia certified to also kind of help monitor the patient as well. So I make sure, you know, all of our staff is kind of certified in that to look at uh, kind of EKG monitoring the oxygen levels, make sure the patient's breathing correctly and all that. So it's not that I'm completely by myself just doing both surgery and anesthesia. Um, there is a lot of responsibility to that. But like I said, at the same time, um, when we're doing wisdom teeth or even full mouth extractions, um, I feel like 
you know, I am concentrating on the surgery, but uh, I'm kind of just going through the motions as well, you know, taking out the teeth, doing just kind of everything that's routine and uh, being able to stay in contact with monitoring the patient as well. Most of the patients that you're you know, performing anesthesia on in the office, those, I assume, are the kind of easier to manage third molar wisdom teeth cases, implants. Uh, things that don't have necessary comparatively huge risk compared to uh, somebody having trauma and, and, and you see in them in the emergency room setting where you do have a whole team that's really there backing you up. And, you know, in, in those cases, you absolutely would need the, the anesthesiologist to, to monitor and keep that patient alive while you're performing the surgery is that yeah that's that's 100% correct so most of our patients they come in you know wisdom teeth typical age is you know 18 to 25 you know getting into maybe 35 uh, kind of at the higher limit for most elective wisdom teeth removal um, but most of those obviously come in get consults we review medical history but most of those um, patients are um, like ASA1, so extremely healthy, no medical comorbidities, no lung issues, heart. So that's kind of where the medicine side that when we're in a hospital, you know, during our training, we're, we're learning kind of how to uh, risk um, stratification with patients if they're stable, healthy, or if this is something that we do need to take to the operating room. So there's patients that do come into my private practice that uh, I look at and I'm like, there's no way I'm going to sedate this patient. Just there's too many risks and the uh, uh, possibility of having an office emergency is too high. So I will take those uh, patients to the hospital and do a full intubated general anesthesia where I have an anesthesia staff uh, kind of focusing just on that and dealing with that while I can uh, do the surgery as well. So like uh, Kyle was saying, we there's kind of a balance between that. And I think if uh, you have good training um, and with anesthesia and surgery, I think it is very safe to kind of perform that uh, together with uh, staff. Getting into what your life is like as an oral surgeon outside of uh, you know, the residency and the training and everything. Uh, we talked about there's, uh, different routes you can take with, uh, you know, being an oral surgeon that just does wisdom teeth and implants versus, you know, an oral surgeon that stays more in an academic setting or a hospital setting and deals with the trauma cases. Uh, is there any kind of um, you know, what's the thought process that goes into that? If, uh, is it purely based on money where, you know, doing the private practice setting, it's almost all driven by money. The, the, the big procedures, uh, meaning wisdom teeth and implants really have high, higher reimbursements where going into a hospital and doing trauma or facial re- reconstruction, uh, you know, the, those type of things are are they reimbursing as high as that as financially profitable uh, for you as an oral surgeon time wise or is uh, I guess my question is what uh, what is the most profitable procedures for you why would a, a surgeon 
uh, choose that private practice versus a, a surgeon that stays in academia and uh, in the hospital setting. Yeah, so our our main kind of treatment is obviously the wisdom teeth and implants. So that's kind of our bread and butter and probably where um, we're most profitable with that. Um, where the bigger surgeries and trauma and orthognathic surgery, the reimbursement uh, compared, I guess, relative to our kind of our bread and butter procedures is is low um, for the time that it takes to do that and the payment, say, from insurance companies. Like some of the trauma that I do uh, that comes into our hospital, like mandible fractures, gunshot wounds, whatever, the reimbursement for the time that we put into doing the operation and what we get out of it is pretty low. And on top of that, uh, most of these procedures are being done at not the most ideal time uh, during the day. Most of the time I'm going in late at night, could be starting a case at 10 p.m., midnight, 2 a.m., and, you know, working for two to three hours on a patient uh, and kind of putting them back together. So, from that standpoint, it is kind of rough, and I I, I think there is a, a kind of a divide that, you know, when you go to private practice, you kind of step away from that, you know, academic uh, kind of lifestyle. And I'm not saying across the board, but I feel like sometimes when you go into private practice, uh, you can kind of easily just get comfortable just taking out wisdom teeth and implants and not dealing with kind of the other stuff because it you do have to take time out of your, you know, afternoon, night, uh, put other stuff on hold to kind of deal with emergencies and issues that are a little bit bigger and you're not getting reimbursed. So it, it is a hard decision. Um, personally, I went through the program and I didn't want to just get out and do wisdom teeth and implants. I wanted to try to do full scope at it just didn't make sense to me kind of going through all this training, learning everything and just ending up doing wisdom teeth and implants. Um, I, you know, obviously did this to try to treat patients. Money's one thing to have a good lifestyle, but you're also getting into medicine to kind of help other individuals. And I feel like it's a disgrace to the profession in a way uh, to not kind of treat patients as you, your skill set is uh, allowing. So would you say that you're um, better than the ones that don't do? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no I'm not saying that at all. Uh, I don't want other private practice oral surgeons hating me, and that's no, that's no. what I'm saying. I, you know, I, I think it does come back to programs and wants and lifestyles, and everyone has you know a choice to choose what they want. Yeah. I just. I personally wanted to kind of try to stay full scope and try to treat everything. And I'm fairly recent out of residency too. So that may, you know, change in another 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and I feel like that's kind of the general courses, you know, once you get out, you're young, you're eager to kind of do all this. But then after a while, you kind of, maybe relax a little bit. And I'm not saying that's a general rule by any means. Um, I know, you know, a lot of older surgeons that are taking on plenty of trauma and doing orthognathics, but I think it just comes down to, you know, what you kind of want, what the individual, I guess, sees fit at that time. So 
I, I don't look down on anyone that, you know, just sticks uh, to wisdom teeth and implants because there's definitely a need for just that. And that can be a full time job, obviously, with that. So it just kind of depends on what you want. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I already said how nice you were. So I was, just, <laughs> I was just joking. But, <laughs> but let's, uh, let's pivot I, I real quick. Uh, you know, most professionals, uh, dentistry, medicine, uh, you know, we, we were, we have been given a lot of opportunities to live a pretty comfortable lifestyle. Right. Uh, we make a lot of our own choices, run our own businesses. Uh, we have a skill set that allows us to help people and, uh, you know, a lot of the world gets caught up in making money. And right. uh, I think a lot of us do forget about, you know, the main reason I think the the majority of us joined this profession was to help people and, you know, running a business, dealing with insurance companies, dealing with crazy patients, that all kind of gets in the way of, you know, we were all brought here to, to help other people. So I, I, I think that's, you know, Part of my brain says, you know, what are you doing, you know, going in at 10 o'clock at night for to work on somebody for a couple hours and you're not going to get paid for it. But the other half of your brain is saying, look, this person needs help. There's nowhere else to go. Like you're you're doing a good thing and really, you know, make an example out of you know, the professional how all of us should be treating people. I agree. Yeah, there's that there's was... definitely nights that I'm going in at midnight and <laughs> questioning, you know, why am I doing this? But <laughs> You know, after say, you know, someone broke their jaw and, you know, come out of surgery and it's 2 a.m. and, you know, you talk to the patient, they're a little groggy, but they're so grateful, you know, it, it, there's, I, there's something to be said for that too. So, you know, money, you know, mostly drives everything, but you also have to be happy in your own skin. And I, I do get enjoyment out of that, even if I wouldn't get paid or whatever the case. So, you know, it, it's just something chose to be in this profession and that's kind of what I want to do so right you know I will tell you you know I have a I have a five month old and uh, I, I I'm still getting up in the middle of the night but I get no uh, thank you or anything so I wonder to myself why the hell I'm doing what I'm doing <laughs> so well, hopefully after you know college maybe grad school uh, you see can, everything you're saying is going to cost me more money <laughs> so, so you're not helping at all, actually. So it's thank an you. Investment. It, you'll you'll have somebody to take care of you when you're old. No, 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 my kids. They'll probably just put me in a home. But it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but hey, let's let's pivot real quick and let's talk about um necrosis. Let's talk about osteonecrosis, right? Uh, that is the most. I mean, that's the one thing that everybody fears when someone has head and neck cancer and they get radiation, or if they're taking bisphosphonate. Um, we don't know, and again, tell me if I'm wrong, but because you're you you you're doing research and you've done a lot of stuff with this, uh, and you know a lot more than I do, but we still are kind of torn on how to treat these patients, correct? And, and, and can you can can you go into detail about you know what it is and and, and what are some of the things to look for and what uh, who is actually like in danger of getting uh, osteonecrosis? Uh, yeah, so uh, osteoradionecrosis basically is. Um, Someone gets uh, head and neck radiation, uh, the bone can be exposed to radiation, uh, and what that does is it decreases basically the vascular supply, decreases the cell, and can cause uh, hypoxia, um, which 
altogether leads to basically decreased blood supply and death of kind of the the bone. Um, and when that happens, then you obviously get infection uh, when there's kind of cell death around there. So it leads to a condition that is kind of hard to treat in some individuals. Um, with the kind of the death of the bone, uh, our kind of treatment is to kind of go in and kind of clean everything out to where we get a healthy bleeding bone um, and uh, in hopes to kind of regenerate uh, some soft tissue coverage and prevent infection from occurring. But um, like you were saying, it, it's definitely difficult. There's not one way to treat this that every single time you're going to have a perfect result. Uh, sometimes you have to do this multiple times on the patient, and sometimes you may even need to kind of resect that part of the jaw to kind of prevent that and then try to reconstruct it with like a fibula and soft tissue uh, pedicle off of that as well. So it's definitely a, 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 a tricky, I guess, uh, disease to kind of treat once it would happen. But I think the biggest thing is is knowing that this can happen and kind of risk factors to look for. And when I have a patient that comes in with, you know, head and neck radiation, I try to contact the oncologist and see were they shielded, how much radiation uh, they were exposed to, what side of the face was a maxilla mandible and kind of come up with in my own mind how to kind of treat this. And sometimes it's inevitable um, on that as well, but at least it gives you a better idea. And this is something too. And, you know, this patient walks into a general dentist's office. It should be a few questions along those lines to kind of see if that's something that should be done by a general dentist or potentially refer out. Um, so, and kind of go from there. But does that answer your question? It does. Um, what are some what of are the some issues that come about there? Any deformities? And, you know, let's talk about people that are on bisphosphonate. Yeah. So bisphosphonates um, are a common medicine used for osteoporosis and uh, can also be prescribed for multiple myeloma. So when uh, patients are put on these bisphosphonates, um, basically there's two cells uh, in the body, one that builds bone and one that takes away bone. And uh, the medicine uh, kind of works on one of those cells and prevents your body from kind of healing. So when these patients are on these and if we don't maybe stop it or figure out the amount of time that they're on this, um, the longer that they're on it, uh, the higher risk they are. And there's been multiple research papers on, you know, what kind of the threshold of kind of mild to moderate risk to then severe. Um, some will say two, some will say three years um, of being on the medicine kind of increases it. But then you also have to look at if it's a pill form or IV form um, just because of the potency of it as well. So like you said, there's there's not a clear kind of course. You know, one patient could be on this for three years and another one be on it for three years and they both have completely different outcomes. So uh, just obviously you have to kind of respect that patient that walks through the door to see how you're going to manage them. And um, most of the time, 
you just kind of have to explain to the patient and see if uh, their doctor is okay with them holding the medicine maybe for, you know, a few months prior to treatment and uh, holding it for a few months afterwards to allow them time to heal and make sure there's no complications uh, while they're getting back to, uh, I guess, a healthy form. So I, I want to switch gears a little bit on you because we're, we're all still in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic. What uh, I guess, what changes have been made at your office and in regards to patient treatment? Because we as um, providers have always been, you know, high volume of patients coming in and out. And what changes have you guys made to really keep patient staff, uh, you know, a- as safe as possible? Because I-, I assume your surgeon office is running through a lot of patients just like we are as general dentists. Yeah. So it's definitely a kind of a crazy time. We, we had, you know, really a high flow and that's kind of cut back. Our office was really open as well. So um, what we decided to do, uh, it kind of looks like a hazmat treatment area right now, but, We've kind of taped off uh, using plastic and like the zippers that you see that you kind of step through and re-zip. Um, we've kind of taped off our office so there's a one pathway in for the patients and another way out for the patients as well. Um, so each kind of room is individually sectioned off from that and then we've also uh, gone as far as to get uh, negative pressure units with HEPA filters that help filter the air and kind of pull negative pressure um, and aerosol kind of out of the rooms uh, to help minimize the risk of transmission if there would be a positive patient and those are used in the operating room for like tuberculosis patients as well so not something that you would standard uh, see standard in a, a typical even surgeon's office or dentist's office. So kind of went as far as that. And then on top of that, we have another device that uh, filters all the oxygen or air in the uh, office through the pre-existing kind of AC unit. And then for PPE, we are using full-face uh P100 regulators um, while we're operating and a uh, full gown with a hood and then we are using a disposable gown over top of that and all of our assistants are also wearing uh, regulators as well uh, while we're performing the procedures and after they're done uh, with the procedure we take them out and have to disinfect and wipe down the entire room. That's uh <laughs> that's a lot. That's a lot. That's I mean, I, the, the the people that I send to the oral surgeon are definitely the the sicker kind of patients that you know have medical complexities, have a laundry list of medications. So the the types of patients that are higher risk of catching this virus. So uh, that's uh, definitely you know, reassuring, I think, to to patients coming into an oral surgeon's office to you know, see that level of protection that's going into keeping them safe. Um, I'm, I'm going to switch gears again. This is a general dentist question for you. Uh, since there's probably a lot of general dentists out there that may have patients persuading them to 
uh, take out thief that maybe they're not as skilled or should be taking out, uh, or the, the dentist is being motivated by money to try and do more than what they're really um, capable of doing. So uh, being that you're the specialist that would rescue me if I uh, am trying to take a tooth out and I run into a problem, whether I, I push a, a root into a sinus, into a uh, a space that that tooth isn't or shouldn't be in. Uh, if I break off a root and it, it's just stuck in the bone that I get to, I, I get in a problem where I didn't review the patient's medical history and there's a, a bleeding complication or anything along those lines. How many times are you going to see a patient from that general dentist before you tell them, yeah, you've messed up too many times. You're going to have to find somebody else to, to refer to. I'm done fixing your mistakes. <laughs> wow. Talk about First putting them on the I spot. I don't know if I would ever say that. Right. Um, I think it's, <laughs> I know of, you know, some that probably would say that. So I, I think it depends on, you know, <laughs> kind of the scenarios, if it's really harming patients and, you know, you see this, then uh, I, it's hard to kind of even step away from that because then you're doing the patient a disservice if the dentist is doing that as well. So personally, I don't know if I'd ever get to that point. Um, I think it'd be have to have to be really bad. But um, like we obviously see dentists around our practice that you know try to get a tooth out and can't do it and there's complications and all that and we you know see on top of our you know kind of schedule as it is it's just kind of our i guess nature of our kind of specialty but um in a way i think we're kind of used to it just because of all the emergencies that kind of come in during residency and that we have to deal with so it's just kind of a i guess a I don't want to say normal kind of day, but just kind of a, it's, it's kind of expected in our, our field. Same, same question to you, Dr. Aka. I, uh, I'm a general dentist that's placing implants, or, uh, and all of my implants are getting, uh, recession around the, uh, and showing the threads on the implants. Uh, I keep sending, the the patients to you to fix my mistakes. At what point do you tell this dentist, Bro, you need some more training. Don't send them to me, or maybe you offer to have them come to your office and you give them some pointers, or, or you, you sit the the general dentist down to have a conversation about, you know, let's figure out how to prevent this from happening anymore. Well, it's actually a tough question. Like personally versus, you know, professionally. That's how you have to we have to separate it, right? Right. Uh, Personally, I I would be like, look, you got to cut this shit out. It's annoying. <laughs> okay? It's really getting to the point where it's just you, you're causing more harm than good, right? Now, right. professionally, I can't say that. Professionally, right. I have to be like, okay, well, let's, let's you know, what happened? Let's talk through it. You go through all the, all the you know, you know uh, BS, really, in a way of just trying to say, listen, just send more over here. Because in the end... This could be a referral, and, and we as specialists live and die off of referrals. Right, right. You know, if a patient, uh, if a patient refers to another patient, or if a doctor or a dentist refers um, a patient to you, we live and die off of that. So you really have to kind of tread lightly. Um, do I get this a lot? Yes. 
Uh, do I get irritated whenever when someone does a weekend course and course. thinks that they can do what, you know, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Brandon and I have done for years? Yes, it's, it's annoying, right? But that's what dentistry, like I said, is going. It's getting to the point where people think, if I just do the shortcut. And, and companies aren't helping either. They're not helping. Okay, there's a there's an instrument. I know I'm sure you guys have seen this. It's a machine that allows you to place an implant like the same time. It's like a three dimensional uh, CBCT scan, and you can actually place it at exactly the same time. So it's like live surgery. Um, and and a lot of um, general dentists use it because they're like, oh well, now it's foolproof. Right. Right. But they yep. don't they forget that they're not honed in on their surgical skills yet. And that's right. the problem is no matter what you do, your surgical skills still need to be on point so that if right. something were to happen, you can get yourself out. Right. No one anatomy. They have one of those uh, machines, um, the 3D real-time navigation. Yes. And there's a lot of errors that if you don't know what you're doing to begin with, you can incorporate into a, your planning that when you place it, even if you do place it exactly how you planned it, if you didn't plan it correctly, then you can run into a lot of trouble. So but that see, actually brings a whole different nature into it because then you have to be fairly confident on 3D virtual planning uh, and using the software as well. Right, but like you know that, right? So a yeah. lot of people that sell it to you, you're kind of like, wait a minute, you know, yeah, come on, calm know. down, right? But the rep is selling to some general dentist, and they're like, really? I can do implants now? Because I've heard that that's the next best thing, right? That's the way to make more money. So if right. you made my life easier, then I'm, of course, going to believe everything that you tell me. You know, and, 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 and Kyle, let me ask you this. How many general dentists do you know that know what's inside of most of their um, materials that they use. Oh, very few. Right. They probably base it off of who their, what their buddy uses or what the rep sold them. Yeah. yeah. That's where dentistry, I feel like, is unfortunately going. It's more of the rep, the reps are dictating what we and what we as dentists are doing. Yeah. You know, it's another topic. And if you guys want to come back, we can argue about this. We can talk about this. Because I could go on for another hour. But it just bothers me because it, it almost dumbs down our profession. Yeah, if you have a, a, a pretty rep coming into your office that you're willing to, you know, if, if that has that sex appeal and that's what, um, you know, causes that dentist to buy that product, I mean, you, you could be getting something as the patient put in your mouth that might not be the best product evidence-wise, but it might be what's going in your mouth because there was a good-looking sales rep that convinced your dentist this is the, the best thing that is available for you, when in reality it's not. So there's definitely lots of, I, I mean, in, in a general practice, I have, you know, I have endo supplies, I have perio supplies, implant supplies, restorative mm -hmm. supplies, prosto supplies. So, you know, to stay on top of all of that stuff and know exactly what's in each and every one of them, plus all of the new materials that are coming out right. on a almost monthly basis, uh, you you almost have to trust the rep a little bit to because you it's almost impossible to stay up on on all that stuff. But uh, again, it, it you know human nature also plays a factor. It it might not be the best product, but I 
you know, I, I, I like this rep. I want her to keep coming around. I'm going to buy something from her. <laughs> uh, might, might be some of the, you know, things that people are thinking. So it's, yeah, it's very, um, it, it's, it, it can be scary if, you know, if you, if you're going to somebody that doesn't know what they're doing, but there's, I, I think that's what you originally were trying to do with this podcast was right. create that awareness for patients. That's exactly right. That's exactly what we wanted to do. And, you know, having people that have expertise to answer the questions that some people are, are asking or, or thinking about, you know. So we'll, 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 let's end it this way, okay? Uh, Dr. Humberger, um, please let us know where you think dentistry is going. That's kind of the way we always wrap it up with everybody. Let us know where you think dentistry is going for the oral surgery profession. Yeah, it's rough right now, especially with uh, COVID-19 around. So I think we're all in a position that we're really uncertain uh, how everything's kind of going to progress. So I'm hoping, you know, if a vaccine comes out, it'll be helpful. But as of right now, just uh, I feel like we are having to slow down to make sure our patients are safe coming through and that something doesn't spread to our patients and or staff, because if that happens, then that knocks us out for potentially two to three weeks, you know, quarantining as well. So I think there's just a lot more care and preparation and making sure, you know, regulations that we're abiding by. Um, so I, it's definitely a tricky time right now of kind of answering that question that I think uh, as we kind of learn more about this, hopefully we have a little bit better insight how to kind of prevent transmission and decrease our risks so we can kind of get back to some type of normalcy that we had prior. Well, I want to definitely thank you for coming on to, to talk to us, and you have the honor of being the, the first oral surgeon, <laughs> on, truth be told. Uh, he, he's he's a nice guy. I like it. I've, I've known uh, him for so many long. episodes. But since oh, we're almost at 100. Prevent one from coming on? That's it. <laughs> you know, I, I look at it as it's my show. I don't care. You know? And, <laughs> but I've known Brandon, I mean, since we were both in school. So, yeah, he's good. He's good people. And no one else, no one else is coming on <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> no, but this was this was awesome. Man. You know, I I honestly um, want to know what are some ways that people can reach out to you. Uh, let us know some of your where you work. Um, some ways to get in contact with you. So if anybody's listening and says, "Hey, I want to go to this guy," how do they do that? Yeah, um, I don't know if you have a link or something like that, but I can uh, give an email address and uh, anyone can email it at me at any time. Uh, look at that daily and uh, kind of go from there. Um, but if like you have a link for, with one of your podcasts, I can put my email address in yep, there for them. We can do that. All right, cool. cool. Well, thank Sounds you, good. I appreciate you guys. Yep, thank, thank you all. <laughs> thank you for listening to Tooth Be Told. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at realdentist with an S at gmail.com. That's realdentist, R-E-A-L, dentist with an S at gmail.com. Remember, the opinions on this podcast are just that, our professional opinions. The final decision about your health should be made by you and a trusted dental professional.